You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. This is Concussion Chronicles, where you get all the top research analyzed, synthesized, and delivered directly to your inbox every single month. There's over 100 scientific publications on concussion every single month. How do you know what's relevant? How do you know what's important? What's worth spending your time? Not only that, but how do you keep up with everything else that you have to keep up with as a healthcare professional? Concussion Chronicles solves this problem by having our research team scour the literature every single week and give you a synthesis and summary of the best and most relevant concussion-related scientific publications for each month. This saves you time and gives you what you need to know each and every month. Click on the link in the show notes to sign up for Concussion Chronicles today. It's the week of September 8th to 14th. Team up, speak up. Okay. Uh, the goal of Team Up Speak Up is for uh, as many athletes as possible to hear a simple speech. The core message of that speech is that athletes have a responsibility to tell a team leader if they notice concussion signs in a teammate. Uh, they've been doing this for a number of years now. Uh, the Team Up Speak Up speech should come from a coach or a team leader during or before the National Team Up Speak Up week, September 8th to 14th. Whatever role you play, you can help us change the concussion culture and improve concussion reporting. Take the pledge to give the speech or bring Team Up Speak Up to athletes in your community. You can learn more by going to concussionfoundation.org. Uh, like I said, this initiative has been going on for years, and uh, the whole one of the big problems we have with concussion and concussion reporting is that athletes typically will not report a concussion if they think that they've had one or that their athletes or their teammates have had one. Uh, and this represents a huge problem kind of in the concussion culture. So the whole initiative here is to change the concussion culture, look out for one another, and speak up if you think that one of your teammates has suffered a concussion injury. This episode, episode 63, is the hockey episode. Um, this started because on Friday, we actually published one of the largest concussion studies done ever in Canada, and it was on hockey players. Uh, as a result, we decided from that, because we we're looking at the prevalence of concussion in hockey, and we realized that a lot of hockey players get concussed. So this is the hockey episode, the episode that every hockey parent or hockey player should listen to. So our new study was published in the Journal of Canadian Chiropractic Association. Uh, it was, like I said, the largest sample size ever done, I believe, in a, in a Canadian concussion study. We had over 5,000 athletes, all hockey players, between the ages of 10 and 25 uh, that were participating in their preseason baseline assessments at one of our 250-plus uh, complete concussion management clinic locations. During our baseline preseason assessments, we typically will ask athletes, have you ever been diagnosed with a concussion injury? And from that, the athlete will say yes, no. And if they say yes, we ask them how many concussions they've been diagnosed with in the past. 
And what we found in analyzing that data and the study that we put together from that is that almost one out of every four Canadian hockey players will suffer a concussion by the age of 25. So one in four athletes by the time they hit age 25 hockey players will suffer a concussion. Um, a smaller proportion of those people will suffer multiple concussions, but the big news here is that almost a quarter of all hockey players will suffer a concussion by age 25. Uh, and the exact number that we had was actually 22%. So not quite one quarter, but almost one quarter of all uh, players. This is also consistent with other data and other studies that have been done in this area. Um, so because this injury is obviously prevalent, we decided that we would do an episode just on kind of hockey and concussions in hockey. So I've categorized these things into prevalence and prevention because those are basically the two main things to understand. Prevalence, we kind of just talked about it, right? Our data, like I said, is in line with other studies that have been done on this topic. Uh, and actually concussion, if you look at, or sorry, hockey, if you look at all the sports uh, for the highest incidence of concussion, um, hockey in, in, this is in under 18 year olds, uh, and this was from a systematic review by Pfister in uh, 2015. They did a systematic review of all the studies looking at concussion prevalence in various sports. H ice hockey ranks number two behind rugby. Hockey actually ranks higher than football in terms of concussion incidence prevalence. Um, this is only on one systematic review and things may have changed since 2015, but at the time, hockey was ranked number two. So it is a very uh, prevalent concussion sport. When you take a bunch of different sports and you look at all of the injuries in those sports, and then you look at what the prevalence of concussion is in relation to all those other injuries, hockey has the highest prevalence of concussion versus all other injuries. Meaning that if you're gonna get injured in hockey, 23% of the time that injury is gonna be a concussion. So almost one quarter of all the injuries that happen in hockey are actually concussion injuries, right? It's a fast sport, it's full contact, and that just opens the door for potential concussion injuries. Prevention, obviously the best thing to do is to avoid getting a concussion in the first place. Um, but how do we actually prevent concussion? Helmets, okay? There's been studies that have been done um, looking at and kind of ranking helmets uh, based on various criteria and people uh, will use this in determining which helmets that they should buy. The truth of the matter is helmets have not been shown to prevent concussion injuries. And the reason is that a concussion happens from the brain moving inside of the skull. So you can wrap the head in whatever you want, but when the head whips back and forth and the brain moves inside of the skull, a concussion can occur. So this is why helmets have kind of fallen short in terms of concussion prevention. The purpose of a helmet is to prevent skull fractures. So the idea is that a puck or other object or the ice will hit in, a, in an area, right? And if it hits directly on the skull, it can crack the skull and create a skull fracture. But if the helmet is there, what happens is that impact hits the helmet and the helmet dissipates the surface area. So rather than getting a, an impact to one small little point, what happens is you get an impact to the helmet, the helmet spreads it out and now the head feels the impact in a broader area. So it reduces the chance of cracking the skull. But the brain inside the skull is still moving back and forth, 
Okay, so helmets have fallen short in terms of their concussion prevention, right? No one helmet seems to be better at preventing concussion injuries. Um, so watch out for marketing gimmicks. The big thing, there is some research to, to show that helmet fit may matter. So make sure you get a well-fitting helmet um, that's properly secured and is CSA certified so that you know that it's up to safety standards. Um, next is mouth guards. I don't know who started the rumor about mouth guards and prevention of concussion, but again, think about what it is. A mouth guard is on your teeth and the brain is moving inside of the skull. If there's an impact from below, mouth guard could potentially theoretically have a chance to reduce brain acceleration just because it creates a little bit of a barrier there. So again, mouth guards have kind of fallen short in terms of their ability for concussion prevention. But on this one, the results are somewhat mixed. Uh, there was a recent meta-analysis where they take all of the studies done in a particular topic and try to come up with some conclusion, some sort of consensus between them all of where we're at. And mouth guards showed a slight uh, reduction in concussion risk. However, it was um, basically what we call it crossed zero, meaning that it was a non-significant finding. So in some cases, it reduced concussions. In some cases, there was just no effect at all. So again, the jury's still out on that. Uh, but again, the, it, it is mixed, and there shows to be potentially a non-significant protective effect from it. So uh, potentially just equivocal. Uh, next, strengthening programs. Um, this one is gaining a little bit of popularity and the idea behind it is that when you get hit and your head whips back and forth, that's really what causes the concussion. Concussion is not caused by a hit to the head. Concussion is caused by acceleration of the brain. The only way to accelerate the brain is to accelerate the head. The only way that the head can undergo acceleration is if there's movement of the neck. And research from way back in the day on animals showed that if you fixated an animal's neck in place so that it wasn't allowed to move at all and you would hit them, right? These cruel studies back in the day, they would swing a pendulum down and it would swing down and it would hit the side. And I think they were using cats at the time. And they would hit the animal in the side of the head and it would cause a concussion injury. But they found that if they fixated the neck in place and didn't allow for any movement of the head and neck, the thing would come down and hit the head. But because there's no movement of the head, there's no acceleration. And if there's no acceleration of the head or brain, there's no concussion injury. It's the acceleration that allows the head to move. It's the movement that causes the concussion injury. So the idea became, well, what if we had a big, strong neck that could prevent the head and brain from moving back and forth? Makes sense, right? The only problem is that the research has kind of fallen short on this. And what we found is that people with the strongest necks don't actually have a reduced incidence of concussion. They don't have even a reduced um, acceleration values of the head. And the thought on this is that neck stiffness, like holding your neck stable and solid, is different from neck strength. In order to hold your neck stiff, you need to have neck strength. But if you're not contracting the muscles of your neck, it doesn't matter how strong you are because your neck is not going to be stiff, right? NFL football players have some strong necks, right? NHL hockey players have some strong necks. But the thing is when you're playing a sport like hockey or football, your head is on a swivel. 
You're constantly moving. You're constantly looking. You're constantly looking over your shoulder for the pass. You're constantly cutting through the middle of the ice, looking backwards. Okay. Concussion injury, peak acceleration of the brain happens within the first six to 20 milliseconds of um, impact. It takes 90 milliseconds to even begin to initiate contraction of the muscles of your neck. It takes another 150 milliseconds to reach half of your contractile strength, which means that by the time you get hit, unless you already saw the hit coming and were able to actively engage well in advance up to you know uh, a quarter of a second or more of time and knowing the hit is coming to be able to contract your muscle to a significant degree to create stiffness of the head right if you're unaware of the hit coming which is most people that get concussed you're not gonna be able to contract fast enough so this the next strengthening that you were doing is not going to be helpful one area that it may be helpful is if you're aware the hit is coming but for the most part concussions happen in sport when you don't know you're about to get hit and that's probably one of the reasons is that you can't stiffen your neck up okay flipping over um, the next prevention strategy is the elimination of body checking and we started doing this in Canada in peewee uh, a few years ago and it all started from a study where they looked at peewee hockey players and in certain leagues where they removed body checking versus leagues that they didn't, there was a significant reduction in concussion injuries when they took body checking out. And you can obviously see why that would be, right? If we eliminate the contact, you're going to have a reduction. You're still going to have incidental contact, right? We have sports like soccer that's a non-contact sport, but people still run into each other and create concussion injuries. So you're still going to get concussions in non-contact sports, no matter what. But by eliminating body checking, you reduce the number to a very, very significant degree. I think it was almost as high as 60% in the preliminary studies uh, of reduction in concussion incidents. And just this week, a new study came out where they they tried to uh, they looked at reducing um, or eliminating body checking in bantam hockey players. So the age groups are uh, novice, Adam, Peewee, Bantam, and Midget. So Peewee is like 11 and 12 year olds. Bantam is 13, 14. Uh, and so they eliminated body checking in Bantam, and from that they found a 56% lower injury rate once they eliminated body checking. They found a lower rate of concussions. However, they found that it wasn't statistically significant. But my bet is that if they had a larger sample size and if they were to reproduce this study, that you would see a tremendous reduction in concussion risk as well. So it seems like the most promising way to reduce concussion risk is to eliminate body contact in amateur hockey. That's just the way it is. All right, so those are primary prevention strategies. How do we prevent the concussion from actually taking place? So far, it seems like elimination of body checking is the, really the only way to do it or just avoiding the sport altogether, but I wouldn't recommend that either. I grew up playing hockey and I love it. Secondary prevention strategies are to prevent the concussion that you have from getting worse. So when you do get a concussion or you have a concussion, this is when things can be super, super important. You want to make sure that you're taking care of the injury that has occurred. The first part of this is recognition. To recognize the signs and symptoms of a concussion and know when to pull yourself out of the game. And that's fitting because this week is Team Up Speak Up Week. 
Just like I was saying, this comes down to recognition of the concussion injury and recognizing it not only in yourself but in your teammates and being able to speak up about it to get that player off the field, off the ice. And one of the interesting things that's been done recently in the research is showing that players that continue to play in the game. There we go. Got to get plugged in. Sam's dying over there. <laughs> in order for, uh, that's a short cord there. There we go. Got it. In order for, um, or sorry, when they're, when they're looking at concussion um, incidents in players that continue to play in the same game, they find that the recovery time is much, much longer. So if you get a concussion and you remove yourself from play right away, your recovery time is short. But if you continue to play in that game, the recovery time is longer. And the longer you continue to play, the longer the recovery time becomes. Sometimes it's like eight times longer. So it's very important to pull yourself out of the game, or if you're listening to this and you're a parent, tell your kids to pull themselves out of the game because as important as you think this game may be, the next one may be more important and it's important to get them out of this one so that they may be able to play in the next one, right? And not only that, you're removing the chance for increased injury, right? So when you've had a concussion, you're potentially more susceptible to future uh, concussions. And so getting out of that game protects you from future concussions, but also what it does is reduces body temperature. So there's been some studies on animals specifically. If an animal gets a concussion and they keep its body temperature elevated, you have an increased release of a compound called glutamate. Glutamate is one of the biggest problems we have with concussion injuries because that increases the amount of calcium that comes into the cell. And the more glutamate that gets released, the longer the recovery becomes. And studies done on animals show that if you keep the body temperature elevated, the more glutamate gets released. So continuing to play your sport and keep your body temperature elevated will continue to release your glutamate, which will ultimately result in more damage and more delayed recovery. So this is why it's important to pull yourself out of the game. And we actually tell some of the trainers we work with to try and cool the athlete down, right? Get their gear off. If you're outside, sit them in the shade, right? Obviously, if you're in a hockey rink, that's great because you're already in a nice, cool environment. Uh, you don't have to do anything else. Just just make sure you get their body temperature down um, just to just to even normothermic, what they call normothermic levels uh, is, is important. The second prevention or se the second secondary prevention strategy uh, is avoiding premature return to sport. So just as important of pulling yourself out of a game that you thought you had a concussion is making sure that you're not going back to play before you fully recovered from that concussion. And what happens is that glutamate that I was talking about earlier opens these calcium channels and those calcium channels allow calcium into the cell and what calcium does is affects the, the ability of each of your brain cells to produce energy. So what you get after a concussion is you get this significant drop in your energy levels. And those energy levels can take weeks to get back up to normal. So the concussion injury is actually this low energy state. And the research on this shows that if you get concussed in that low energy state, now you get this additive and compounding cumulative effect. So you can have a concussion where you have this recovery that lasts, you know, a few weeks, and then if but if you get hit at some point during those few weeks before you're fully recovered, 
then you can have recovery that can last months to even years or it can be fatal and that's what's called second impact syndrome when you get a concussion before you've recovered from the first the big problem with this is that the symptoms and how you feel doesn't correlate with uh, your recovery so the example I always use is a broken arm if you break your arm ow it hurts Okay, you go to the doctor, they take an x-ray, they look, yep, there it is, it's broken, I can see that. You put a cast on. The pain from that fracture actually goes away within a week or two, right? After a week or two, you don't have any pain in your arm anymore. Well, that doesn't mean that the arm is healed, it just means you don't have any pain anymore. It doesn't mean you can cut your cast off and go back and play your sport because the arm underneath is still broken. Right? And one little motion, boom, you're going to break it again and potentially you're going to break it much worse. And now the recovery is going to be much longer. So it's the same thing with brain and concussion. You might feel better a week or two after the injury has occurred. That doesn't mean that the brain has healed. But unlike a fracture in your arm where you can go into the hospital and they can take an x-ray of it and see that it's still not healed, we don't have any x-rays. We don't have any imaging. We don't have any blood tests. We don't have any MRIs or anything like that that can see when the concussion injury has recovered. The best thing that we currently have is to test function. So we test your reaction time, your balance, your memory, concentration, your vision, all these different things to see if things have recovered. But the only way to know if things have recovered is to know where you started. So we have to know what you were like before your injury on all of these things so that if in the event you do get an injury we can use that as a tool the way that we operate at least at complete concussion management is an athlete gets a concussion injury we take them through the return to return to learn return to school return to work and return to play stages and then once they've completed and passed all those stages which include things like physical exertion testing um, and so on and they've passed all of that and everything's looking good, then as a final kind of step, we'll run them through balance, reaction time, memory, concentration, vision, etc. And we'll compare that to their pre-injury test, which has to be less than a year old. So you have to do this every single year. And actually we found this just this week, I found there was a girl that came in, soccer player, ran her through all the physical exertion stuff. She passed everything, brought her in, ran her through her entire kind of baseline retest and her vision was still off, her visual tracking speed was still slow, and her reaction time was still slow. And I was like, this is a perfect example of why we do this. You feel 100%. You've recovered, at least in your mind, sufficiently, but you're still showing significant deficits. We would never know that your reaction time is slow by half a second unless we actually tested it, and that's exactly what we found, right? Because to her, she's fine, she feels fine. But doing this test and having those results to compare to allowed us to make a safer decision and we held her out for another week. Came back in, retested her. All right, now things were looking a little better. So that was how we worked it, right? So this is the idea behind, behind uh, what's called baseline testing or preseason testing. Now there's some confusion around baseline testing because a lot of times people just do a computer test and assume that that is sufficient. And in fact, the research on this shows that a computer test by itself has some issues with reliability. Plus, you're not able to test all the different facets. 
Computer tests won't test your balance, won't test your visual tracking speed and all this other stuff. So in order to have a proper, you know, quote unquote baseline assessment or preseason evaluation is to have a comprehensive battery of tests so that you're catching all of these different things. So in terms of a secondary prevention strategy, preventing going back to sport too early is really the big thing because remember this low energy state that I was talking about, you need to make sure you're out of that. You need to make sure you're recovered functionally. The problem is that even when you're in that low energy state, you're going to start to feel better. So you're going to feel 100% before the brain has actually gotten out of that stage. So potentially you're putting yourself at risk by going back and playing your sport because if you get concussed at some time during that period, well then now you're way down here and it's going to take you months to recover and potentially could be permanent, you know, creating permanent damage, that type of thing. So um, and in fact, more and more guidelines are starting to show the benefit of this. The proceedings from the International Ice Hockey Summit, which uh, just came out a couple months ago, provided six recommendations to improve concussion safety in hockey. And one of their top six recommendations as part of its action on concussion was to, quote, mandate baseline testing to improve concussion diagnosis for all age groups. All right. So that is the concussion episode, um, things that every hockey player and parent should know. Prevalence, it's prevalent. We know that it happens a lot. Prevention strategies, the best primary prevention strategy we have is eliminating body contact in amateur hockey. And in terms of secondary prevention strategies, make sure that you have concussion recognition, team up, speak up, recognize concussion symptoms in yourself and your former, and your teammates, I should say. and Another secondary prevention strategy is to make sure you have a good, proper, comprehensive baseline assessment with testing multiple facets of function so that you can use that to help in the assistance of proper return to sport decisions so that you're preventing these secondary concussion injuries, which are actually the more severe forms of concussion. Any questions? Alrighty, guys. See you next week. Just one more thing before you go. This episode is brought to you by Complete Concussion Management's continuing education platform, more specifically, the Level 1 course, Introduction to Concussion Management for Healthcare Professionals. This course dives into the pathophysiology of acute concussion and covers all the things that happen inside the brain immediately upon impact and also in the days and weeks that follow. We dive into metabolic dysregulation, blood flow impairments, autonomic nervous system dysregulation, heart rate variability, and much, much more. This course also examines the biomechanics of concussion, subconcussive impacts, and looks at the research surrounding concussion prevention programs, and more specifically, neck strengthening. In the final module, we take a very in-depth look at chronic traumatic encephalopathy, otherwise known as CTE. We separate the media hype from the scientific literature and give you an overview and comprehensive in-depth understanding of this particular disease, which allows you, the healthcare professional, to be able to have better conversations with your patients and help to potentially ease their minds from a evidence-based standpoint. This course is meant for healthcare professionals, but it by no means is excluded to healthcare professionals because we know that many people out there that are watching and listening to these podcasts are people with friends, family members, or personal experience with concussions that also want to learn more. So if you want to take this course, you're free to do so. Please visit the link below or in the show notes to see the level one course. 
Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.